Okay, so we're recording. Great. Okay, it's 12 o'clock, so let's get started. Welcome, everyone. So glad to see you all here. Um, welcome to everyone in the room on the UCA campus, and welcome to everyone joining our live stream online. I'm Lonnie Harrison, director of the Charles T. McDowell Center for Global Studies. And today, on behalf of the McDowell Center, with thanks to the Department of Modern Languages for providing this comfortable space, it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest, Professor Brian Whitmore. Brian Whitmore is an assistant professor of practice at UTA's McDowell Center and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Professor Whitmore is the creator and host of the Power Vertical podcast, an internationally acclaimed resource for policymakers, scholars, and journalists providing cutting-edge analysis of Russia and post-Soviet affairs. You can listen to new episodes of The Power Vertical every week at powervertical.org or on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. Before joining the faculty at UTA in the fall of 2020, Professor Whitmore was Senior Russia Analyst for Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty, and prior to that, worked as a foreign correspondent for the Boston Globe in Moscow and in Prague. Whitmore has testified before the United States Congress and the European Parliament, and he has briefed officials on Russian affairs in the US, Canadian, and various European governments, as well as NATO. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, and elsewhere. He has appeared as a guest commentator on CNN, the BBC World Service, NPR, and various other media. And since coming to UTA, He's featured regularly on the NBC5 DFW News, where, in fact, you can tune in to see him later this week, probably on Thursday evening on the 10 o'clock news. Um, today, Professor Whitmore is presenting his talk, Separated at Birth, The Roots of the Current War, and Why Russia and Ukraine are Different. We'll have time for a Q&A after the presentation. Uh, now, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Brian Whitmore. And thank you all for showing. I, I didn't expect uh, this kind of a, a showing on, on, on a Monday afternoon. Um, cool. Oh yeah. Yes. Slides are good. So what I, what I want to do, and the, the reason I wanted to give this particular talk, is to dispel some myths about Russia and Ukraine, um, because there are a lot of myths out there. Um, myths that Ukraine is somehow just this appendage of Russia. Um, even people who don't like what Russia is doing in the war now will say, well, yeah, but really, historically, Ukraine's always been part of Russia. No, it hasn't. This is not true. It's simply not true. Um, and I'm going to show you why that's, that it's not true in this lecture. And myths have consequences. Um, myths have consequences. People at right at this minute are dying because of these myths um, in Ukraine. So I wanted to dispel these myths. And I want to do this in two ways. Um, the first thing I want to do is talk about Ukraine and Russia since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. And this is this is something I know a little bit about because I was living in both countries in the early 1990s, um, witnessing a lot of this firsthand as it was happening in real time, working as a journalist in, in, in the former Soviet Union in the 90s. But I also want to go a little bit farther back in history. Um, at the end of the lecture, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of both Russia and Ukraine, because um, they both grew out of something called Kievan Rus. They both grew out of this, this, this entity called Kievan Rus, 
um, that existed in the 11th century um, in Europe. It was actually the largest, there weren't states at that time, but it was the largest thing resembling a state um, in, 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 in medieval Europe at that time. Um, so move to the first slide here. And that is the formative, what I call the formative crises of 1993-1994. Shortly after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. It broke up into 15 independent countries, some of whom have a history as, as independent countries, like the Baltic states, like Ukraine, by the way, um, and some of which had some of whom had no history whatsoever as independent countries. Some of the Central Asian republics, for example. The Soviet Union broke up in December of 1991 into 15 separate countries, two of which, of course, were the Russian Federation and Ukraine. And shortly after the breakup of the USSR in 1993-94, Russia and Ukraine were experiencing identical, absolutely identical political crises. Um, the, the crisis was a something we're, we're all familiar with, uh, something I live in Washington, I'm damn familiar with this. A struggle of power between the legislative and the executive branches. Right? Now here in the US, fortunately, we have very clear rules spelled out how the legislative and the executive branches are supposed to interact with each other. We have centuries of precedent and constitutional law about how the executive and legislative branches are supposed to interact with each other and who is who has more power in which spheres. Um, in 1993, in both Russia and Ukraine, you didn't have this. Because both of these new countries were still operating according to their Soviet-era constitutions. The rules of the separation of power had not been kind of laid out or spelled out. It was completely unclear. So in both countries, in Ukraine and in Russia, you had a president saying, I'm, the, you know, I'm in charge, and you had a parliament saying, no, I'm in charge, and you had no roadmap but how to get out of this mess. Um, both countries are operating according to the Soviet era constitutions and the principle of the separation of power, something that is like in our bloodstream here in America, had not been established. It had not been established. So these, these formative crises were, I think, really telling, really predictive, and really reflective of each country's respective history of prior to independence about what kind of countries they were going to be going for in the decades going forward. So let's move to how Ukraine solved. I'm going to look now in, in turn how Ukraine, oh, that's not what I want, I want that. Um, let's take in turn Ukraine and Russia and how they solved this political crisis. Now, Ukraine's first post-Soviet president was a man that a lot of people have forgotten about now, a man named Leonid Kravchuk. Um, you see him pictured right here. Um, he was Ukraine's first post-Soviet uh, president. He was not really a charismatic dude, to be honest. Um, he was like he was the he was the third-ranking Communist Party official in Soviet Ukraine. Um, he served as a member of the Secretariat of the Ukrainian Communist Party since 1988, chairman of the Supreme Soviet of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic prior to independence. So he was a he was a communist hack, basically. He was, a, he was a communist apparatchik, um, a member of the communist elite in Soviet-era Ukraine. But in, on December 1st, 1991,
he began, he, he was riding this wave of independence fever, this, rising, this rising nationalism in all of the, the former Soviet republics, including Russia, by the way. This isn't something that just happened in Ukraine. All of the former Soviet republics began to want to, you know, acquire, you know, to, to, to realize their national aspirations. Um, Ukraine has a very strong sense of patriotism, and Kravchuk began to kind of latched onto this, ran for president on December 1st, 1991, the same day the Ukrainians voted for independence from the Soviet Union, he won the presidency with 61.6% of the vote. So he became Ukraine's first post-Soviet president. But to be honest, I was living in Ukraine at the time. Nobody really paid much attention to him. <laughs> he was this colorless kind of, uh, but, but I'm, 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 I'm kind of knocking him down now because I think that this man actually became one of the most important figures in Ukrainian history for something he did um, later um, that I'm going to get to. Now, just like in Russia, Ukrainians were experiencing the same political crisis. There was a struggle between the parliament and the president. And on top of this, Ukraine was in the midst of an economic collapse. And a there was a debilitating series of minor strikes. Um, and I was, I was living in Ukraine at this time. I was living in Odessa. Um, so yeah, I recommend everybody visit um, on the Black Sea. Um, and, it was rough. I mean, you would get your water shut off like uh, several times a day. Um, your electricity would work periodically. Things that we and I was there as a you know as an American in his thirties who just wasn't accustomed to these kinds of things. Um, but Ukraine was going through just a, an economic crisis, an energy crisis, and a political crisis. Karachuk was locked in a bitter dispute with the Ukrainian Parliament, which is known as the Verkhovnarada. Um, which means Supreme Council in Ukraine. And on June 1st, 1993, the Verkhovna Rada voted to hold a referendum that would serve as a motion of confidence or no confidence in President Kravchuk. So the, the, the parliament basically laid down a marker and said, we are going to call a referendum to kick you the hell out. But at the last moment, the Rada backed off and said, Let's try something else. Why don't we just agree to have early elections for president and early elections for parliament? Now remember, there's no roadmap here. No roadmap, right? Congress and the U.S. president get into a dispute. There is a whole series of procedure that we know that's laid out in constitutional law that says how there was no roadmap. This is just how you figure this out and your instincts effectively took over. And what happened in Ukraine, the instinct that took over was Let's like have a compromise here. Let's work this out. Let's have early. Let's let the people decide, and not just for the president or just for the part, but for both. Let's let the people decide who's going to rule this country, and then we'll draft a constitution after the people decide. Because all these institutions were elected, by the way, in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. We are now in independent Ukraine. Let's have our first elections. So that's how they resolved it. They had parliamentary elections in March of '94. They resulted in a divided parliament. The communists had the most seats, but not a majority. Um, and in the first round of the presidential elections on June 17, 1994, and I was, I was living in Kiev that summer as this presidential election was going on. And you wouldn't even know a presidential election was going on. It was just kind of this thing that was happening in the background. Um, people really weren't paying that much attention to it. Um, in the first round, Kravchuk, the sitting president, won the most votes. He got 38.4% of the vote. The challenger, this, this guy here, Kuchma, he, he came in second with 31.8% of the vote. Now, this kind of reflected how the early period in post-Soviet Ukraine 
was. Um, it was it was divided between this largely Russian speaking eastern and southern part of the country and the largely Ukrainian speaking western part of the country. And Kravchuk, the sitting president, came from the west. He was Ukrainian speaker, came from the west. Kuchma was a Russian speaker, came from the east. And if you look at the vote, you could see it almost just along the dividing lines of the country of, of the linguistic dividing lines. Ukraine's changed a lot since then, by the way, in terms of this linguistic divide. This linguistic divide was there then, but it's really changed a lot since. So in the second round, on July 10th of 94, Kuchma won, the challenger won. He won 52.4% of the vote. And again, with the vote roughly breaking down along language lines. And this is where this color, colorless communist apparatchik Leonid Kravchuk, I think, made his way into Ukrainian history. And there will be monuments to this man. Um, and it's for something he did when he lost. You can really learn a lot about somebody as how, how they behave when they lose. He lost the election and he very, very gracefully stepped down without incident and allowed Leonid Kuchma to take power. Now, I remember I was living in Kiev at the time, and I was thinking, wow, something, something important just happened. This is the first peaceful transfer of power in the former Soviet Union. No place had done it yet. Not even the Baltic states, which are seen as the kind of the most, the most democratic and progressive uh, parts of the former Soviet Union. Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, none of them have had a peaceful transfer of power. Ukraine did it first, and it, it, it did it. You could almost could have sleptwalk through it. I mean, this was the most boring election ever. But it was the most consequential and most important election ever. Um, because this guy, this, this colorless communist apparatchik, who is about as charismatic as a box of hammers, right? He, he did the right thing. He did the right thing when he lost. And for this reason, he is seen as this elder statesman in Ukraine, and I, I, I think he'll go down in history. Um, and Ukraine is one of the most important figures, even though he barely served. He served as president for like roughly four, three or four years. So that's how Ukraine solved this crisis. This is where their instincts led them. Um, Russia solved the crisis in a very different way. Um, now, like Ukraine, like in Ukraine at this time, the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, was locked in a standoff with the. The, 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 his parliament, which was called the Congress of People's Deputies, and with its speaker, um, Ruslan Hasbolatov. And Yeltsin was also locked in a stand-up with his own vice president, Alexander Rutskoy, who had sided with the parliament. Now, the parliament was dominated by former communists, um, and it was a break on the reform program that Yeltsin wanted to put through. Yeltsin, unlike in Ukraine, the Russians were spearheading these very, very radical economic reforms called shock therapy, this quick transition to a market economy, um, spearheaded by Yeltsin's then prime minister, Yegor Gaidar. Um, but there was a stalemate. He couldn't get anything through his parliament. And again, no rules of the road about how things are supposed to go, right? No indication of what the president can do with just executive action, what he needs legislative action for, how do you resolve disputes? None of this. They don't have centuries of constitutional law like we have to work this out. Um, the first, Yeltsin's first instincts were good. Um, he decided to hold a national referendum on April 25th, 1993, with four questions. Question number one, do you have confidence in the president? Question number two, do you support the president's policies, his reform agenda? Question number three, do you favor early presidential elections? And number four, do you favor early parliamentary elections? So this was really the first vote 
in post-Soviet Russia. Right? Yeltsin had been elected president in the Soviet period um, in 91. The parliament had been elected in the Soviet period. This is the first time the Russian people got to speak. And there was a great campaign. This is actually the first kind of campaign advertising you saw in post-Soviet Russia. The, 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 all the signs, that are the pro-Yeltsin signs said, da, da, niet, da, right? Because this is the way you're supposed to vote on the four, da means yes, niet means no, right? So you're supposed to vote yes, yes, no, yes, support for Yeltsin, yes, support for his policies, yes, early presidential elections, no, early parliamentary elections, yes, da, da, niet, da. We're, we're inundated with like campaigning, campaign advertising. It was really the first, my first experience seeing campaign advertising in, in Russia. Um, and um, the, when the response came in, they were good for Yeltsin. Confidence in the president, 59.9%. Support for his policies, 54.3%. Early presidential elections, 48.8%. Not a majority, but a very healthy kind of a joke minority, 48.8%. Um, early parliamentary elections, 69.1%. Right? So Yeltsin took this as, a, as, a, as an endorsement of his rule and a condemnation of the parliament's rule. Now, I think that's a bit of a stretch because 48.8% is kind of almost a majority. Right? It's a little too close for comfort. But nevertheless, yeah, the, 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 the vibe coming out of that April referendum was that, the, was, was the, the, that Yeltsin had won. But nevertheless, the parliament began preparing a constitution that would weaken Yeltsin's powers anyway. They just ignored the results of the referendum uh, and started preparing a new constitution that would weaken Yeltsin. So Yeltsin took a radical step, and this is where his instincts started to go wrong. Um, on September 21st, 1993, Yeltsin dissolved parliament, unilaterally dissolved parliament, unilaterally dissolved parliament, sparking a crisis. Now, the members of parliament barricaded themselves in the building, voted to impeach Yeltsin, and make Rutskoy his vice president, the president. So this is already moving in a different direction, a different trajectory. Than the, than the events we saw in Ukraine, where the instincts were for compromise, right? The, the, the instincts were for, for let's do this without using force. Um, and on October 3rd, defenders, defenders of the Congress seized the mayor's office and the national television station. And then this gave Yeltsin all the excuse he needed. He struck back brutally, authorized Russian tanks to attack uh, the parliament. And you see here, that's artillery. That's the result of artillery fire. That was the Russian parliament at the, in, in, in those days. Um, it's not the Russian parliament anymore, but it was then. Um, he also struck back, um, sent special forces, stormed the parliament building. Hasmolatov and Rutskoy were arrested. Nearly 150 people were killed. Hundreds more were injured. Russia's first post-Soviet experiment with democratic rule ended in flames. Um, and some argue that Russia never recovered. I, I refer to this as Russia's original sin. This is Russia's original sin. Because it set some pretty bad precedents. Now, Yeltsin briefly ruled through emergency rule. New parliamentary elections and a referendum on the Constitution were scheduled for 1993. And the new Constitution strengthened the power of the presidency so significantly that some labeled the new system super presidential. Um, the referendum passed, um, parliament came into power, but it was toothless. Um, and so this set a series of, uh, of, 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 of precedents. Um, so what were the lessons and the repercussions of both of these? Let's start with Ukraine again. 
this is funny. This is one, these are two cases where conventional wisdom at the time was completely wrong. Conventional wisdom at the time was completely wrong. Initially, the conventional wisdom about the Ukrainian election in 94, the one where Kuchma beat Kravchuk, the conventional wisdom, this was a victory for the pro-Russian forces in Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine at this time was divided between a Russian-speaking East and a Ukrainian-speaking West. Because Kuchma hailed from the East. And Kuchma was very friendly towards Moscow. Um, but the more important precedent in this immediate thing that a Russian-speaking president came to power, more important than this was the precedent that was set. The precedent was set for a peaceful transfer of power. And this proved to be more important and more enduring. It's worth noting that in the six presidential elections that Ukraine has had since independence, the incumbent or the incumbent's handpicked successor has lost every time except once. Kuchma won re-election in 1999, but that was it. Every other Ukrainian incumbent president has lost. Ukraine is not kind to its incumbent presidents. Um, in 1999, Kuchma was re-elected. In 2005, Viktor Yushchenko defeated Kuchma's designated successor, Viktor Yanukovych. In 2010, Viktor Yanukovych came back and defeated uh, Viktor Yushchenko, the incumbent president. Um, in 2014, Yanukovych was forced to flee the country following the Euromaidan uh, crisis and Petro Poroshenko was elected president. And in 2019, during a war, Volodymyr Zelensky defeated the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko. So the, 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 the point here is that Ukraine has competitive elections. It always has competitive elections. It always has free and fair elections. From day one, it has had this precedent that elections are free and fair in this country. Don't cheat. Um, loser steps down, and the loser has always stepped down. In fact, looking at, you know, Zelensky's kind of become an international rock star, right, as a result of the war, for good reason, um, for very good reason. He's really risen to the occasion. Um, to many people's surprise, I didn't see this coming. Most Ukrainians, I didn't see this coming. Um, but I would not be surprised if Ukrainians kicking the hell out. <laughs> I mean, they, I would, the, the, you don't have a lot of job security if you're Ukraine's president. You get to be president for one term, but that's it. Um, so not only have Ukraine's elections always been more competitive than Russia's, its economic and political elites have always been more pluralistic. Ukraine has oligarchs, just like Russia, but it has oligarch pluralism. It has different oligarchs supporting different political forces. Um, it has, it has oligarchic pluralism. It has some oligarchs in the Donbass region, like Renat Akhmedov and Viktor Pinchuk and Dmitry Firtash, who tended to support pro-Russian candidates. It has uh, oligarchs in, in the Dnipro region, like Ihar Kalamoisky, and in the Kyiv region, like Petro Poroshenko, who tended to support pro-Western candidates. The point is you had, you had oligarchic pluralism. And most importantly, in Ukraine, as a result of this, this kind of path of political development, Civil society had the opportunity to flourish, to, 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 to grow. It had breathing space. And Ukrainian civil society is really something to behold, something we could all learn a lot from. Um, so you have this flourishing of civil society, which would become important going forward. So that's, that is how the, the, the crisis, the kind of the, the resonance of this early formative period played out in Ukraine. In Russia, not so much. Um, now, again, this is an example of where conventionalism was wrong. Um, when Yeltsin shelled the parliament, uh, 
a lot of people on this side of the Atlantic were cheering, <laughs> myself included. <laughs> I was wrong. I was wrong. Well, we were all wrong. We were all wrong. Um, the initial conventional wisdom, the events of October 1993, the bombing of the Russian parliament by the president, was that it was a victory for pro-Western liberals because the, the parliament was dominated by communists and Yeltsin was a nominally pro-Western figure, right? That was the initial conventional wisdom. But in reality, and now we know this with the benefit of hindsight, uh, in reality of setting precedence, of executive dominance and that conflicts can be resolved by force. Um, Russia has not had a single competitive election since the events of October. Not a one. Not a one. Yeltsin was re-elected in 96, defeating the communist candidate Gennady Zuganov in an environment where every television station was warning Russians that if they voted for the communists, they're all going to eat bugs for breakfast for the rest of their lives. <laughs> um, I never saw more documentaries about life in North Korea than I did in the summer of 96 during that presidential election. Um, all of the oligarchs poured money into, into Yeltsin's campaign and demonized Zuganov. Now, I didn't want Zuganov to win, but I had a bad taste in my mouth about that election. It's just, this is not the way you should do elections. All right, so Yeltsin was elected in 96, defeating the communists. When Yeltsin's second term ended, he anointed Putin as his, uh, his, his designated successor. And then suddenly apartment buildings, and those of you who took my Putin as a class know all about this, apartment buildings mysteriously started blowing up in Moscow and other cities. These were called terrorist attacks by che Chechen rebels. We, had, we now know they were conducted by the Russian security services. A false flag operation turned Putin into a national hero. Um, and got him elected president in 2016. Um, and then Putin's remained there ever since. I can go into all the little machinations of how he's remained in power and how he's circumvented the Constitution. Um, but, I mean, I'm, it's, it's probably really not, not, not worth the time. It's probably better to, to suffice to say, once Putin was, was elected in 2000, he pretty much stayed. Uh, if you think about it, if you were born in 2000s, I'm looking out this room, I see a lot of people who probably were born around 2000, right? Or in house. You've said one president. Right? Had one president. That's it. You've had Putin. You were born in 2000 here. Well, you would have had Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. You would have had five. By the time I hit 20, I had I, I, I had five or six. I had Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan. Yeah, I had six. Um, the point is, you usually have four, five, or six presidents by the time you're 20. You're 20. If you were born in 2000, so you'd be 22 now. You've had one. You've had one. You've had not a single competitive election uh, since then. Um, you have oligarchic kind of monopolization. You have a, a, a consolidated oligarchy. So the business elite is effectively consolidated around Putin, unlike in Ukraine, where you have oligarchic pluralism. Um, the, the oligarchs are consolidated around Putin. And civil society has been stifled and repressed. Protests is not tolerated in Russia. Liking or sharing things on social media that the Kremlin doesn't like is not tolerated. It could land you in prison. Um, this is Alexei Navalny, who is the main opposition leader in Russia. He is now a, uh, the, the, the guest of the state. He was in the Russian prison colony. So this is how this all kind of uh, played out in Russia. The, the decisions we make in these formative crises are very, very important. And the decisions that Ukraine made in this, in, in 93, 94, and the decisions Russia made 
93-94 kind of put the country on two separate paths uh, in this sense. I like to say that Ukraine has had three, and this is by no way endorsing smoking. This guy's been born, so let me give you a break. I, I didn't think I didn't see that. I didn't want to get myself in trouble with the state of Texas or anything. <laughs> but um, Ukraine, I like to say that Ukraine has had three post-Soviet revolutions. Um, the first one I already laid out for you. 1994, I consider a revolution. Having a peaceful transfer of power the way Ukraine did in 94 was revolutionary set the stage for the country's subsequent development. Um, fast forward 10 years, you had something that's become known as the Orange Revolution. What happened in the Orange Revolution? The, I'm not supposed to go past here, so I'm mm -hmm. so If you see me kind of stopping there, that's why. Um, what happened in the Orange Revolution? Ukraine had a presidential election in 2003. Um, Kuchma's second term was up, and he wanted to pass the, the, the torch to his loyal prime minister, Viktor Yanukovych, who was, also, was very close with Moscow. Russia wanted Yanukovych to win. Um, Russia was pouring a lot of money um, into, into the campaign. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that Russia actually poisoned uh, Yushchenko, the, the pro-Western opponent of, of, of Yanukovych. The election happens. And the by this time, this Ukrainian civil society that we talked about earlier has been developing over 10 years. And they knew how to monitor elections. They knew how to kind of keep track of ballot stuff. Um, they knew how to get exit polls commissioned. Um, and they announced the winner was Yanukovych. And it's everybody good. said, we call BS on that. Let's fix it out for me to admit those people. Is everything okay? Oh, we, we have people in the lobby uh, on the stream. So uh, we might just have to um, uh, exit out of oh, okay. for a second to admit you want me to pause them? for a second on a minute? Sure. Okay. Yeah, just pause for a minute. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> good chance to have some water. Welcome, everyone, joining us online. Okay, thanks. Go ahead. So, um, so the result of the 2003 elections were announced, and Russia, the, the Ukrainian civil society called BS and said, you know what? We got exit polls, we got evidence of ballot stuffing, and Ukrainians poured into the center of Kiev. Um, and they branded their revolution. They all wore orange. <laughs> um, they poured into the center of Kiev to Independence Square. Which is called Maidan Nezhelezhnosti, which means Independent Square in Ukrainian, um, which forever after that just became known as the Maidan. It became almost a sacred, hallowed ground. Um, Ukrainians poured into the Maidan, um, basically shut down the capital city. Um, and pretty much all of you know, the entire population was practically in, in, on the Maidan in, in the center of Kyiv, shutting it down. There were tent cities. Um, and as a result, they redid the election. And Viktor Yushchenko won. Now, what really happened in the Orange One thing it was the coming of age of the civil society, that something unimaginable in Russia, right? Changing the result of a fraudulent presidential election. In Ukraine, the election really was fraudulent. I know this is a fraught topic in our country at this time. The election really was fraudulent, okay? In our, in our 2020 wasn't fraudulent. But anyway, I just want to... <laughs> um, but what was going on? was a couple of things. One was this coming of age of this this um, this this um, this civil society. But another thing was happening within the oligarchy. Because Kuchma and Kravin and Yanukovych were connected to the Donbass oligarchs. Renata Akhmetov, Viktor Pinchuk, um, Dmitry Firkash, all of these kind of pro-Russian oligarchs in the East. And they were trying to monopolize power. And the other oligarchs 
Well, again, these aren't nice people. These are crooks, right? They have stolen money from the state. The oligarchy is not just another word for businessmen. The other oligarchs, though, uh, people like Ihor Kolomoisky, Petro Poroshenko, they were like, oh, hold the phone here. We have oligarchic pluralism in this country. We don't have all of, one, one group of oligarchs. So they financed the orange forces. So you had civil society and part of the oligarchy kind of coming together in this sense. Um, this was a step in the right direction. They established the principle that in Ukraine there is oligarchic pluralism. One group of oligarchs is not going to monopolize power. Um, so, so you had a couple of things going on. You don't fix elections. We have oligarchic pluralism. Okay? And then that you 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 had that for you had you had that for um for, for a series for ten years. And in 2014, you have what is now known as the Revolution of Dignity or the Euromaidan Revolution. This resulted from now between 12, 2004 and 14, you had a couple of presidential elections. And Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian guy, came back to power. You know, he won a free and fair election in 2009, defeating Yushchev. Right in 2009, he came to power, and he began moving Ukraine in the direction of Russia. Right? Um, extended the lease in the Black Sea Fleet, was basically made, give, give, giving Russia a lot of favorable access to Ukrainian Ukrainian enterprises. Um, and but at the same time, he understood that he had a society that was pretty pro-European. Um, Ukraine had been changing. The language issue became less salient. Right? Most Ukrainians by this point were bilingual. Most of my Ukrainian friends speak Russian as a first language, but they're also fluent in Ukrainian. And my Ukrainian friends who speak Ukrainian as a first language are also fluent in Russian. They're all mostly also fluent in French, English, and a dozen other languages too, because that's how Ukrainians are. But, um, but the, this, this issue of the conflict between Russian and Ukrainian speakers has, had really died down. I mean, it was noticeable when I would visit Russian-speaking cities like Odessa, and I would hear Ukrainian being speak, spoken on the street. I'd be like, "Wow, that, I wouldn't have noticed that. Wouldn't have happened in the '90s when I lived here." Um, so over this, so so you, you've had that kind of dying down. You had a very pro-European country. Yanukovych was in negotiations with the European Union to sign a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU and an association agreement. This is kind of the first step to joining the. Everybody that joined the EU started with this, right? Whether we're talking about the Baltic states, or Poland, or Slovakia, or the Czech Republic, you know, this is how it's, and the Ukrainians knew this, and they wanted it bad. And Yanukovych knew this too. And he knew that even he, he had to kind of at least pretend to go along with this. Um, but at the last minute, after a meeting with Putin, who did not want Ukraine, to have a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement and association agreement with the European Union. Putin effectively bribed Yanukovych um, out of doing this, bribed and or blackmailed. Um, he wanted Ukraine, because Putin was forming what at that time was seen as an alternative to the EU, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, and he wanted Ukraine to join that. You can't join Poland. You can't have a free trade agreement with two very incompatible economic systems. Right? Um, so, Yanukovych at the last minute backs out. The last minute, the EU summit in Vilnius in November of 2013, Yanukovych unexpectedly, well, those of us that have been watching his meetings with Putin actually kind of expected it, but he backs out of this. And this infuriated the Ukrainian population. It infuriated them because this was all about Europe. This was this, this was their, their first their chance to get into Europe that Ukrainians want. And it matters for all sorts of practical reasons. Visa free travel. 
um, so Ukrainians could travel to Europe without a visa. But it also was symbolic. The Ukrainians poured on again to the Maidan. This is where all action happens in Kiev. It's Maidan as a legacy of the Independence Square in the center of Kiev. The, the Ukrainians poured onto the Maidan. Um, incidentally, and actually this is an important point of what kind of country Ukraine has become. There was a Facebook post by a, a, a young man, uh, Mustafa Naim, who was um, actually a Ukrainian citizen, but an immigrant from Afghanistan. Um, and he wrote a post on Facebook saying, hey, everybody, if you don't like what's happening in our country, let's go all go to the Maidan tonight and protest. And they, Ukrainians came out in droves, tens of thousands kind of came out. Um, and I say this, I, I point out his ethnic background because Ukraine, unlike Russia, is developing into this kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural country. It, 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 it was kind of bound together by this civic, inclusive form of civic patriotism. Which again goes against the Russian propaganda, which saying that Ukraine is run by a bunch of Nazis. Um, remember, the president right now, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, is a Russian-speaking Jewish man. The person who started the Euromaidan, the Revolution of Dignity, was an Afghan immigrant, Ukrainian citizen, who's now a member of parliament. You don't see many Afghan immigrants in the Russian parliament. Trust me. Um, so Ukrainians came out after the square. Um, and Putin said to Yanukovych, you got to deal with this. you got to crack down. Now, this goes against tradition in Ukraine. Peaceful protest was allowed. Never use force against peaceful protests. Get this in Russia. Don't do it. Yanukovych listened to Putin. That was his big mistake. Um, brutal crackdown ensued, December 2013. Snipers, rooftop snipers, fired on the crowd. Over 100 people died. Over 100 people died. They've become known as the heavenly country. Um, I like to say they're the first Europeans because they are the first people to die under the European Union flag. Because on the Maidan, they were not only waving the Ukrainian flag, they were waving the flag of the European Union, the blue flag with the yellow stars in a circle. It's the flag of the European Union. So these were the first people that actually died under Europe's flag. Um, and this did not have the effect of scaring Ukrainians away. Ukrainians don't scare. Right? They don't scare. Um, after those hundred people died, after blood was shed, more people came out of the square. People came from all over Ukraine. People were driving. Ukraine's a country the size of Texas. It's, 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 it's a big country. Um, it's roughly geographically the size of Texas. People were driving from all over Ukraine or taking trains or getting there. You had millions of people in the center of Kiev, like, and it was a revolutionary situation. Yanukovych's security forces get cold feet and back off. He flees the country for Russia, and the rest is pretty much history. Russia annexed Crimea and began the war in the Donbass in 2014, the war that is continuing to this day and was followed up with a full-scale invasion in February of this year. What the Revolution of Dignity did was it moved Ukraine from this situation of oligarchic pluralism to saying, we want real pluralism. We are part of Europe. We are Europeans. Um, and we're willing to fight and die for it. This was the decisive break. This was the absolute decisive break. Um, so Ukraine steadily, over the course of, the, 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 of, of independence, and it's, it's 31 years of being independent, has moved steadily in the direction of Europe. It's become 
I would say more like Poland and Lithuania, and I use those two, two countries for a reason as an example, um, and less like Russia for a reason. Basically, it, it, it's, it's clearly headed for Russia. But all of this is unacceptable to Russia, which views Ukraine as part of its historic rights. In July of last year, 2021, Putin published a rambling 7,000-word 7, article called On the Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine. Um, this is when we all should have realized this war was coming. Um, published a rambling 7,000-word article. Among those claims were that Ukraine is, and I'm quoting here, an enti entirely the brainchild of the Soviet era was to a large extent created at the expense of historical Russian lands. Today's Ukraine is little more than a Western project designed solely to undermine Russia, and he likens Ukraine's post-Soviet nation-building efforts to weapons of mass destruction. John, um, today, Ukrainian sovereignty is only possible in partnership for Russia. We are, after all, one people. Um, in speaking to former U.S. President George W. Bush at the NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania, in April 2008, Putin said, Ukraine is not even a state, George. Um, this is when Ukraine was trying to enter NATO um, at, the, at the 2008 summit. So I, I, I kind of juxtapose this kind of democratic development of Ukraine since independence with, the, with Putin, which reflects those, the, the, the views of largely the Russian elite. I contrast these two things for a reason. Um, because in all propaganda, there's always a brain truth. Um, Ukraine and Russia do both come from this thing called Kievan Rus. Kievan um, Rus in the 11th century was the largest state, and I use that in quotes in Europe because there were no states in the 11th century, but it was the largest <laughs> political entity in Europe. We see it here. Um, Kievan Rus, and the word Rus tends to confuse everybody because it has nothing to do with Russia. Rus is a Viking word. Kievan Rus started as a Viking trading post. Um, everything that's interesting in Europe has something to do with the Vikings. Um, <laughs> the, the Vikings were trying to establish a trade route from the Baltic and the Black Sea, um, which is a sensible thing to do. And along the way, they were doing a lot of pillaging and plundering, like debauchery and stuff that Vikings are famous for. But they were trying to do something sensible. They were trying to establish a trading, a trading route between the Baltic and the Black Sea. And they settled in Kiev. Um, now, again, Kievan Rus has no relation to Russia. Those who were in this, this entity were a mixture of Vikings and Hazars, who are semi-nomadic, chirping people. And the rulers of Kievan Rus converted to Christianity in 988. They did. Converted to Christianity in 988. They incidentally tried a bunch of different religions. They were like kind of almost, I mean, it was almost like this like smorgasbord or like, you know, a la carte. They, 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 they tried Judaism, they tried Islam, they settled on Eastern Christianity because they liked the aesthetics of Eastern Christianity. Things that, things that kind of set historical things in motion. Um, the key, the Kievan Rus lasted until 1236 um, when the Mongols invaded. And what was in Kievan Rus was effectively split. The Eastern part was fell under Mongol rule and later became Russian, eventually. And the Western part was part of something called 
I'm going to be toggling between these two uh, these two slides became part of something I think the most understudied entity in Europe, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, Professor Timothy Snyder at Yale University studies the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. I think this needs to be studied more. It's really important. The east, this is the, the western part of what was Kievan Rus, became the, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was a European superstate of its time. It encompassed, as you can see, all of what is today Ukraine, all of what is today Belarus, all of, of course, what is today Lithuania and Poland, um, all of what is today Latvia, part of what is today Estonia, uh, and some of what is today Southern Russia. This was a monster state, a big state, right? And it was also for its time, again, we're talking the 13th century here, so it was not going to carry away, but for its time, it was democratic. For its time, it was progressive. And Ukraine was in this for 500 years, right? 500 years. Um, who has ruled Ukraine historically? And I am very mindful of the timeline. <laughs> if you look at who has ruled Ukraine historically, right? And again, I started this lecture saying I wanted to dispel some myths. I wanted to dispel some myths. So you have Kievan Rus, and then the rest of the time, Ukraine was part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. 1240 to 1569, 329 years, and then which be, later became the state, but over time other empires emerged. The Habsburg Empire over here, the German Empire over here, the Russian Empire over here, the Ottoman Empire down here, and over time, it, 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 was, it was partitioned. It was partitioned. Um, it was in, in, in the late 18th century, it was partitioned. The eastern portion went to Russia, the western portion went to the, the, the Austro-Hungarian, or the, the Austrian Empire at the time. Um, so, going back, what, what happened? So if you look at this, this, this time period, only in 1795 did Ukraine become part of the Russian Empire until its breakup in 1918. And then four brief years of independence, um, 1918 to 22, before being reconquered by the Soviet Union in 22, where it remained for 69 years. And then since 91, Ukraine's been, um, been, been independent. Let's do the math here. Uh, Ukraine was, you know, where was, who has ruled Ukraine? Well, Poland, Lithuania for 555 years. 555 Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, 191 years. Independent, 34 years. Ruled for Moscow, 192 years. Not ruled by Moscow for 590 years. Right. So this, this, to, 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 when anybody tells you that Ukraine is historically part of Russia, please remember this slide. Because <laughs> I, I actually sat down with my calculator and was doing the math because I, I, I had. I had always known intuitively this was true, but I had never sat down to do the math until now uh, when I was preparing this lecture. Um, so it's not surprising when you look at this history. Remember, I said over the course of independence since 91, Ukraine has become behaving more like Poland and Lithuania than like Russia, right? That shouldn't surprise you. It was part of entities ruled by Poland and Lithuania for 555 years part of entities ruled from Moscow for just 191. 
191 years is a lot of time. And it's more close, to, it's closer to our time. Um, but this is, this, this is telling, and it shouldn't, it, it should not be surprising that post-Soviet Ukraine has developed the way it did. And I, this is a, probably a good time to stop and take questions. I probably talk a little bit too much. Sure, no, wonderful. Mm -hmm. First, thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you. Questions. If anybody has to go, that's okay, but um, uh, you must have some questions for Professor Whitmore. We'd like to start. Um, so, Professor Whitmore, would you say uh, historically, uh, like Ukraine does not like Russia at all, so uh, which has cutted uh, the, uh, the way that Ukraine, the Ukraine has and Russia behaves nowadays? Do, do, would I say that Ukraine doesn't like Russia? Or? Yeah, historically, yeah, just like, uh, just like the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the screen behind you is uh, like uh, that uh, Ukraine has only been ruled by, uh, by Moscow from, uh, for 192 years. Well, it is not being ruled by Moscow for uh, 590 years. So, uh, so would you say uh, emotionally, uh, Ukrainians are like, or the or, or the country Ukraine does not like uh, does not like Russia? I mean, right now that is certainly the case. Ukraine was a like I said, was a divided country. Mm -hmm. um, because this, these, these things are complicated. During the Soviet Union, you had a lot of transfer of people. A lot of people moved to Ukraine from Russia. Ukrainians were shipped out to the Gulag. You had a lot of kind of what we today would call ethnic cleansing going on. So the population of Ukraine in 91 was a complicated mixed bag. Um, and you had a lot of, in the East and in the South, you had very warm, warm feelings toward Russia. Now you don't. Now you don't. Uh, bombing innocent civilians in cities tends to kind of turn them against you. Um, so no, I wouldn't say that Ukrainians are naturally predisposed to hate Russians. I don't think that's the case. Um, but they, they, they love their independence. Mm -hmm. They love their freedom. And if Russia's standing in the way of that, mm -hmm. they're going to fight them. Um, they're going to fight them. And as I always said, don't ever get in a fight with Ukrainian. You might win the fight. You're going to get a black eye. <laughs> so, yeah. What do you think that Ukraine looks like post-Russian invasion? That's an excellent question. I don't have a, 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 an answer. I do think that Ukraine is going to move into, I think Ukraine's going to win the war. I think that much is pretty, pretty clear at this time. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I talk to a lot of people who know a lot more about military things than I do, like, you know, three-star generals and stuff, and they, they, they say, yeah, Ukraine's going to win this war. What is it like? What does it look like after? I think it looks like Poland. I mean, I, I, and I use that metaphor. I don't mean exactly what it is. But I think it becomes an Eastern European country. Um, it's, it, it's, it's going to resemble, increasingly resemble, Poland and Lithuania, or Slovakia, more than it's going to resemble Russia. It already does. When you go to Ukraine for five, it vibes your people. It doesn't buy Russia. Um, yeah. Dr. Kanya? Yeah, yeah I'm going to ask a selfish question because my dad is, uh, my dad is Polish and the part of Poland where he was born is now part of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to ask about the linguistic diversity about is there a lot of Polish spoken in the Western Ukraine or what is the relationship between like Western Ukraine and Poland? Yeah, you, you do have Polish things spoken in parts of Western Ukraine. Um, you do have kind of actually this mix, you have kind of these like regional almost dialects that emerge that are these weird mixes between Russian, Ukrainian, and Polish. You'll, 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 you'll find that as well. So, and, but, but beyond that, the Ukrainian language and the Polish language are very close, right? They're, they're both kind of Western Slavic languages. This is the irony. 
Ukrainian language. I, I speak Russian and I can fake Czech pretty good. Um, my like pretty lame Czech helps me understand Ukrainian much better than my fluent Russian. Because Ukrainians, Ukrainian is kind of a Western Slavic tongue. In fact, there's a lot of mythology about the name Ukraine, Ukraine, which comes from means Ukraine, means on the outskirts. The word Ukraine in all Slavic languages, Russian, Czech, Polish, means on the outskirts. And Russians like to say Ukraine just means because they're on the outskirts of Russia. I'm like, no, no, no. The term Ukraine came into existence before there was a Russia, and it is from Polish. It came from the Polish on the on the outskirts of Poland. That's where it came. It came into being during the time of the Polish Ukrainian but yeah, to answer your question, you do, yeah, you have a lot of kind of very interesting linguistic diversity, um, in, in specifically in Western Ukraine and the Carpathian region. It's, um, I, again, I speak fluent Russian and I can't understand, and I speak Czech. And I, I, it's, it's this mix of these different Slavic languages, but you, you also have pure Polish. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Why don't you choose people? Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know who everybody is. Yeah. <laughs> How do you choose, or, um, how does this change the political landscape in Ukraine? Because you said earlier that um, they're not tied to their incumbents. Yeah. So does that change after the war? That's a good question. I think, I, I, don't, I don't see how it can. I mean, remember, Churchill himself lost an election after winning World War II. Um, although, I don't know. So that's, uh, this is going to be a very interesting thing going forward. I mean, it's not approachable on your So incumbents do one one one. Zelensky, I, has he become such a rock star that there's no way they can kick him out? Or are they going to say, hey, this dude's got too big for his grandkids and we've got to kick him out? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the Ukrainians are a very you know, interesting and unpredictable people. Um, but uh, what, I, what I'm more concerned about, about what this does after the war to the political landscape of Ukraine, is that Ukraine has always had a problem with corruption. It's always, it, despite I think it is a very positive picture of Ukraine today, I should give up that. There's been long been this problem with corruption. Ukrainians get very prickly when you bring it up. Um, I try to bring it up with them, not as saying, you know, I'm, I'm the Americans telling you how you should run your country. But you know, this is a vector of malign influence for the Russians. They use corruption to undermine your needs. So I want to, I'm hoping that Ukrainians kind of, you know, has, has kind of passed the that had this catharsis and that, that, that getting into the European Union means serious changes, structural changes. So I think the, the carrots of EU membership is, if, it, if history is any guide, and we saw this in other countries that joined the EU, the carrots of EU membership is going to force Ukraine to kind of eradicate the problematic parts of the political culture. I think we have time for two more questions. Someone here, and then Dr. Bobrovsky. So you said that uh, it kind of looks like both, right? I don't really know what Poland looks like. I mean, it, it, it is a democratic European state where the rule of law and institutions predominate, right? Um, rather than a post-Soviet state where everything is run by patron-client relationships, um, corrupt networks, and things like that. So it's, it's going to become when I say it, it's going to look like Poland, I, I just pick Poland because geographically is close to Ukraine, but it's going to be a dem functional democratic European state. That's what I'm So I'm very curious um, to know if you have, you must have thought about how this is likely going to end. And I'm asking because we all want Ukraine 
to win, of course, and there's a lot of conversations about it and chilling for Ukraine because Ukraine is morally right. But Russia is still big and it's still right there and it's sending rockets to in, you know in the center to the center of Kiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Putin's still in power. Mm-hmm. So well, how do you how do you see it ending realistically? The only alternative I see is for Ukraine to win on the battlefield, drive Russia out of Ukraine, which is very realistic. This could happen. It's probably likely to happen. I mean, the, 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 what I'm told by military, and again, I'm not a military expert, but I talk to a lot of military experts. And what I'm told is unit for unit, the Ukrainians are far and away better than Russians. They're better trained, they're better equipped, they're better, they're better they're more disciplined. Um, where Russia is, in a lot of ways, a big fighter. It's a big military. It's probably just standing on the floor, but it's poorly trained, poorly motivated. Um, so I think the only, this is the, there's only one way for this to end. Um, Russia has to be so, so what about like the tactical nuke scenario where Russia is doing something? I'm so tired of talking about tactical nukes. Every journalist has to be about tactical nukes. Um, look, um, I think the question is, you know, Ukraine is winning partially because of its discipline, but partially also because it has support from the West. Yes. If the Russians are sending the tactical moves, which which is a theoretical possibility, it's a theoretical, the operative word how is far theory. is the West going to go? Oh, I think the message has been sent by the Biden administration. No, if, if, if I mean, if Russia, first of all, I think it's highly unlikely that Russia forces the war. It's not a zero chance, but it's fair for a number of reasons. Number one, there's absolutely no battlefield advantage to using a nuclear factory. It's just, it's, just a, it's just an intimidation tactic. Everybody gets that. Um, number two, the Chinese would not tolerate If Russia loses China, they're screwed. Right? They have nothing. They use China. And China, according to what I'm hearing in Washington, has made it very clear to Moscow, Dude, don't you dare. We don't want that Pandora's box opened. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, so I think it's highly unlikely. And number three, it's my understanding that the U.S. has sent a message to Russia that it refuses to be re-injured in a real way. So that's, but I, I, I think we're, we, when we talk about this new thing, we're playing Putin's game because he wants us to be talking about, he doesn't want us to be talking about that, Yeah. right? He wants us to be saying, oh my God, he's going to lose something. No, I don't think, I, I think the chance isn't zero, it's never zero. I grew up in the Cold War, so this kind of doesn't freak me out. I grew up every day. Know, knowing it could be the last and we can get, we can get nukes, you know, this, uh, people, this generation hasn't really. Um, but I, I, maybe I'm just not as freaked out about Arizona, but it's just highly unlikely for the number of things. It's not zero, but I don't, I don't like that it dominates our, our discourse. Because that we're playing these games. Well, we should be talking about this, right? We should be talking about why Russia and Ukraine are different. Why, why, why is Ukraine becoming this democracy, albeit imperfect, it's still a democracy. Um, in coming out of the same Soviet Union that Russia right? Instead, we're talking all about this. This is what Putin wants us to talk about. At the very least, I think we're all a lot more informed after oh, today. Yeah. So thank you again very much. <laughs> Subscribe and give it a five star yeah. rating and review and share it with your friends. Awesome.
is, are, are we still live? Yeah. Bye to everyone joining us online. Thank you so much. Hi. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs>